Well, praise God. Well, how many have uh, finished your Christmas shopping? You wrapped it up and uh, you're ready to go. All right, about six of you. All right. That means a lot of us got uh, some work to do, right? <laughs> uh, well, this morning we're going to uh, take a little different direction, really, for this next month. Uh, we've been preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians as a church. Uh, it's been really foundational and uh, just encouraging and uh, really uh, if you could turn that music off, I can hear it up here. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, wait a second. Hey, what's going on? Thank you. Uh, anyway, uh, with the new year uh, approaching, we will come back to 1 Corinthians, but we wanted to take a break and talk about Christmas because it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? And, uh, and so today we're going to start a series that really ties in to our Wednesday nights, what we're doing, a time to give, and uh, that's what we're calling our series, a time to give. Everyone say, a time to give right? And at Christmas time, it's interesting that there are expectations around gift giving, around giving in general at families, uh, around our families, around work and with friends, uh, giving gifts, exchanging back and forth. And there's a lot of expectations. There's a lot of uh, sometimes anxiety around that. How many think that it's uh, um, you know, difficult to buy gifts at times? I, I think it is. Sometimes we're actually working on, you know, what do we get my parents? We send a text to my sister who lives close to my parents and spends a lot more time. And uh, we, we sent a text and said, uh, what, what should we get uh, mom and dad <laughs> to my sister? And, uh, and we didn't realize we sent it to my brother-in-law. And, uh, my, and they live in South Florida where it's hot all the time, right? We go down there and it's just, you know, blazing hot. They're always uh, air conditioning. And uh, he sends a text back. He says, uh, an electric blanket for mom <laughs> and leather pants for my dad. <laughs> We knew something was wrong. <laughs> we knew that wasn't my sister, but anyway, we messed it up. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's tough. And what's interesting is my kids are getting older. Reagan's now 15. Logan is 11. Uh, it is harder to buy gifts for them. How many notice that? With the older your kids get, you know, when they're young, you can get them anything, right? You get them a matchbox, and they're excited. If they unwrap it, they're happy. Well, it's not necessarily that easy. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is that at Christmas time, we've probably all experienced this, that we've received a gift, right? And it's something less than what we expected. How many have been there, right? Something less than what you really wanted. Well, at Thanksgiving this year, we didn't make it to Florida, but my family was all together, minus our family, and they were watching home videos of Christmas past. And they were telling us about this, and I said, man, I'd like to get my hands on those and destroy them. No, 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 no just kidding. And, uh, but what, what's interesting is they were sharing with us is that the reputation is, for me was that the older I got, the less I appreciated the gifts that I was receiving. And I hope that hasn't happened in your home. And maybe that's been your story. I don't know. But my reputation and, and what I'm about to show you this morning is not flattering, okay? I, I just want to you know, give you, but it's for your enjoyment, all right? And what you're about to see are three gifts that are given. One or two of the gifts are given from me, one to my mom and then one to my sister. But then what I want you to really focus on is when I, it gets around to me, um, I'm opening a gift from my parents and I want you to notice my reaction 
to the gifts, and uh, I just want you to, you know, pay close attention, and you can, uh, you know, do whatever you want. You could leave. No, don't leave. <laughs> but this is my family, 1992 Christmas. Here we go. <laughs> Did you see the little, huh, okay, on to the next thing. And that was the reputation a couple weeks ago. My parents, they're talking about us, and they're like, oh, you should have seen this. I'm watching these, going through this, and obviously you can't get all the clips, but it's like one after the other. And I sent my parents a text. I said, I am so sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened, but uh, that year I returned every gift Literally, even like the dollar pair of socks and because I wanted a new speaker system uh, for my stereo. And I, I'm looking back saying, how selfish was that? But how many have been there, right? You've been disappointed by the presents that have come your way. All right, just acknowledge, you know, I mean, I know you're sitting next to someone that gives you gifts. It's not those gifts. <laughs> but honestly, and the older we get, we d hopefully disguise the disappointment but it happens. It happens every year. This year, my guess is there's a wife that's here that has asked for a pair of boots, and maybe the, the, the boots show up, they think underneath the presents or under the tree, and it's the right size, maybe the um, right size box, right weight. But when they, you know, maybe even the, the wife was smart enough to, you know, save it in the shopping cart. All the, get, all the dad has to do is hit buy, right? But all of a sudden, the dad thinks, well, I'm going to think outside of the box, right? And doesn't get a pair of boots, but instead maybe a turkey roaster. I don't know. It's not what she wanted, and she's disappointed. The same can happen on the flip side. The husband who wants a new iPhone. How many guys? You know what I'm talking about, right? The right size, the right weight, but then you open up the gift. You're so excited, and it's a pair of nose clippers, right? It's about the same it's not what you wanted. And how many know sometimes we get what we need, not what we want. And gift giving overall, it's complica complicated and sometimes it's just tough. And uh, we can acknowledge that. But for the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about this, a time to give. And today we're going to focus on a time to give hope. Everyone say hope with me. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, verse 13, and I'll give you a second to get there. Um, this is going to be our key verse um, for today and for the next couple weeks. But listen, what uh, you know, when we look at the idea of hope, hope is synonymous with Christmas. We sing about hope in carols and different Christmas songs. We see hope written in Christmas cards and then Christmas decorations. I was preparing in my office and in my mind, I thought on our mantle at home that we had the word hope. And I thought I was putting in my notes and I get home and it doesn't say hope, it says Noel. But anyway, uh, but hope, it's everywhere, right? And the reason hope is there and the whole reason we see hope is because Jesus he came to bring hope. That's kind of the ultimate reason. But I want to unpack this, this verse for us and look at this over the next few moments here. And let's look at it. Romans 15, verse 13. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Why? So that you may overflow with hope by the power of of the Holy Spirit. Let me read that again. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Why? So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I really like the last part of that. The first part's about receiving hope, 
But then the second part says that you overflow, that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Is it possible that this morning, if the truth be told, that some of you here, if you're honest, you're saying, man, I am not overflowing with hope right now. Some of you are not even looking forward to Christmas 2014. In fact, you'll be glad when 2014 comes to an end. Things in life haven't turned out the way you thought they should or how you hoped that they would. And my guess is that there are many of us in that circumstance. You find yourself saying, it's not the way I wanted it. And there's a disappointment, kind of like in 1992 with some of the gifts that I got. A friend of mine just this week was sharing with me that when he looked at 2014, it was a year of loss. He felt like he's lost everything. And he said, I can't wait for 2015. Maybe you're here and you finished school and the job market's been tough and you didn't get the career job that you were hoping for. Or maybe you had to move back in with mom and dad for a season. And you find yourself saying, it's not the way that I wanted it. And again, there's some disappointment around that. Or maybe this was the year you were hoping that by Christmas, that this year you'd have a child or another child in your home. But there was miscarriage or infertility or maybe the adoption fell through at the last minute or there's a hole in your heart because of it. Or maybe this year for the first time there's an empty chair around the table at Christmas time because of death or sickness or, and you miss the laugh or you miss the smells of a grandpa or a grandma. Maybe you're newly married and there were unrealistic expectations, which sometimes happens. You had the mindset, the Disney mindset, oh, you know, happily ever after, and maybe that has disillusioned you, and maybe there's disappointment. You find yourself saying, it's not the way I wanted it, and there's disappointment. Maybe Christmas just overall is a tense time, dealing with relatives, unresolved issues, ex-spouses, uh, child custody issues, and you're saying, man, this is not the way I wanted it. Or maybe after the service today, you're going to walk to the car alone. And you'll see couples holding hands, and it's going to hurt because you feel all alone. A friend I play basketball with, uh, Tony, you know him, uh, recently divorced in the last couple years. Uh, he was t- saying just uh, three weeks ago, he was saying the hardest part about the holidays is being alone and it's tough and he feels hopeless and sometimes we feel hopeless we are disappointed and life can be a reality check sometimes isn't that the truth well in this season i was drawn to a story in the bible it's not the typical christmas message it's actually found in the old testament and at first glance the story seems to be about a family that appears of no importance and of no significance especially no importance to the Christmas story on first look. But I want you to track with me for a few moments here and turn with me to the book of Ruth, okay? And uh, in the Old Testament, it may take you a minute. I'll I'll give you some time to get there. But the book of Ruth is only 4 chapters long. And it begins in an era when the judges were ruling Israel, and it was before the time of kings, all right? So there weren't any kings, there were just judges. And, um, and at this particular moment, when Ruth was written, there was an, an, an extreme famine in the land. Uh, some 
uh, wonder if God caused the famine. It was judgment uh, on the children of Israel, uh, or it could have been just a famine. Uh, it, uh, the Bible's not crystal clear on that. There's some speculation around that. But there's a man, his name is Elimelech, I'm sorry, and he decides to move his family away from the promised land, all right, because of the famine. Uh, and he decides to move his family to the land of Moab, which is a foreign land. It's foreign gods. And uh, just a side note, it's interesting, as I was reading about this a little bit, uh, there are some commentators that really give Elimelech a hard time. They say that, you know, instead of trusting God to supply for their needs uh, in the land of, you know, the promised land, he foolishly left to go after a food supply. Um, I don't know. Uh, his name means my God is king. And some uh, in the commentators say, oh, he did not live up to his name. And, and again, I don't know. If I was a dad and it was short on food, how many know you, you work, you go out, kill something, you bring it home, right? Even if you got to move, I'm not sure. But anyway, Elimelech, uh, he has a wife and her name is Naomi. And her name means pleasant and sweet, and they have two sons together. And you kind of get all of this in the first few, few verses uh, of Ruth. But their sons, uh, Malon and Kilion, which actually means sick and dying, believe it or not, right? But by verse 3 in the book of Ruth, tragedy strikes. We don't know why it strikes, but Elimelech, he dies. We don't know if he, if he dies of old age or of a heart attack or heat stroke or maybe he's hit by a camel. I'm not sure. But then Naomi here is in a foreign land all by herself. Her boys had already married two Moabite women, Orpah, not Oprah, right? Orpah and Ruth. And after 10 years living in Moab, Naomi's adult-aged sons, they both die. Surprise, sick and dying. You know, I mean, that's their names. I'm not sure. But the reality is, is there are three widows at this point, Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws. They're sharing a box of Kleenex, all grieving the loss of their husbands. And it's not the way that Naomi wanted it. To say that she was disappointed would be the understatement of the year at that moment. These three ladies... They were battling what even some, uh, some here are battling at the holidays, loneliness. I mentioned my friend to, uh, 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 who I play basketball with, but it's interesting. It's everywhere. I was at uh, my son's fifth grade camp up at Pendaluan uh, maybe two months ago, and we were on a hike, and uh, there were other uh, parents along the way, and I got talking with this one mom, and, and uh, her daughter is a freshman at uh, Grand Haven High School, and I'm like, oh, my daughter goes to uh, Grand Haven, and she's like, well, what's your daughter's experience been? And I'm like, well, it's been okay. She's, it's not, you know, her favorite thing, right? And, uh, and, she, and then the mom goes on to tell me that this daughter has not connected. She's totally lonely. She sits at, alone at lunch. She reads a book, and she's turning more inward, and she's lonely. I'm thinking, man, in a school of 2,000 kids, to be lonely? Is that even possible at school? But what I want you to know is there are people that are lonely at work that you work with, and they may be even in the crowd, or there may be people here at church that show up week in and week out, but they walk away feeling lonely. But anyways, Naomi here in the story decides to move back to her homeland, okay? Goes back to Canaan, goes back to the promised land, say, well, why would she do that? Why would she come back to 
to the promised land? Well, for one, she was a foreigner in Moab. There was no welfare system there. There was no church to take care of her. There was no help. And so her daughter-in-laws, they're lonely too. They all decide initially to move back to Canaan. And on their way, about halfway, Naomi stops and says, all right, girls, you don't need the baggage of a mother-in-law, right, in a foreign land because they would be foreigners in that land. And she says to him, basically, she says, you guys need a man. <laughs> and, uh, and Orpah takes her up on it. She turns back and goes, goes back. But Ruth insists on going with Naomi. And that's where I want to pick up the story in the Ruth. In Ruth chapter 1, you should be there uh, hopefully by now. Ruth chapter 1, let's look at what it says in verse 16. But Ruth replied, so uh, Naomi says, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied in verse 16, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Very interesting. Verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Maybe at a wedding you hear, till death do us part. But it's kind of an interesting thing. A mother and a mother and a daughter-in-law, it's an incredible relationship. And so Naomi and Ruth, they continue on this trip back to Naomi's hometown. Does anyone know what her hometown was? Bethlehem, that's right. How many of you heard the story or the, the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem? Do you know why we sing that, O Little Town of Bethlehem? Because it was a little town. A couple, couple hundred people only in that little town. And it's the first clue that ties us to the Christmas story. I wasn't trying to be funny, but that is true. <laughs> and so Naomi returns and there's big news. I mean, our church is a couple hundred people, so if a family came back you know, from a foreign country, you know, we'd make a big deal out of it, and they were making a big deal about it. They're saying, remember Naomi, pleasant and sweet. She's been gone 10 years. But look what Naomi responds to the people there in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Very interesting. At this point, Naomi is angry. She's mad at God. She feels like God has not held up his side of the deal. She says, this is not the way that I wanted it. Right? And as you read the story, and I'd encourage you to read it. It's only four chapters long. As you read it, you think, man, this is sad. And basically, it's a story about loss, a loss of a husband, a loss of a, a two sons, a loss of her home, a loss of her land. But the question this morning for us is, does the story have to be about loss? Is it what it has to be about? And I would say no. Gerald Sitzer was an interesting gentleman. He was in a car accident. He was hit by a drunk driver in, his, in a minivan. This is told in the story that he wrote, his grief story, in a book he wrote, A Grace Disguised. And Gerald, he talks about that after the accident, he lost three of generations in his family, all in an instance. He lost his mother, his wife, and he lost his young daughter. 
and he wasn't even hurt. He walked away without even a bruise. And he says this in his book. He says this, that the experience of loss does not need to be the defining moment of our story. The experience of loss does not need to be the defining moment of our story. Now that's easy for me to say, but put yourself in his shoes, and he's the one writing this after incredible loss. The point is, is that the story doesn't have to be about loss. It can be about our response to the loss. We do not get to decide what role we play in life in many ways, but we can decide how we play the role that we're given. Isn't that true? And so for you this morning, you may reach the point in your life or in your story, in your journey, you're saying, man, is your, and the question is, is your story going to be defined by loss or can your journey be about something else? And for Naomi's life, it was not about loss. You continue reading through Ruth and you realize that this is not a story of loss. It's a story of redemption. It's incredible. So we're back in Bethlehem. Ruth goes into the fields and she begins to pick grain. It's barley season and it's harvest time. And you say, well, man, did she have to go out in the, the fields? Well, yeah, she had to eat. She had to work because there was no support system. And it was actually required of the farmers to leave some of the harvest unharvested so that the poor could come and eat. And that's what Ruth was doing. This was not glamorous. When you read it through and you don't understand the background, you may think, oh, that's nice. She's out, you know, getting, getting a meal like everyone else. No, it'd be like going uh, to a downtown area, kind of the slums, and uh, picking up aluminum cans just to get by, just to have one meal. But it's here that Ruth gets noticed. She's out there. and She's noticed by the last character that I want to uh, acknowledge in the story, and it's Boaz. And uh, Boaz is a single guy. He's wealthy, he'd never been married, and he's the one that owns the field that she is gleaning in. And uh, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, I want to kind of pick up the story there. Chapter 2, verse 3, look what it says. So she went out and she began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. And as it turns out, and we'll come back to that, coincidentally, right? She found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. From the clan of Elimelech. This is Naomi's husband's family's property. They're connected. Boaz. And I love how it says, as it turns out. How many know that God was probably had a hand in that? It wasn't coincident. It wasn't totally by chance, but Ruth ends up in a field owned here by her late husband's family. And the long story short is, is that Boaz notices Ruth he likes her, he befriends her, and so Naomi, her mother-in-law, she decides to play Cupid, right? And she tells Ruth, this is the truth, you can read about it, go get a bath, put perfume on, put nice clothes on, and after when Boaz goes to sleep, go lie at his feet. Lie at his feet, this is what she says, and he will tell you what to do from there. I'm reading this, I'm thinking, is this a hookup? You know, I mean, is she really saying to do this? And it's not what you think. She really is preparing herself like a bride. She makes the announcement to Boaz that she's interested, she's available, that she's willing to relocate. And what's 
what we see in Ruth chapter 3, look at verse 8, uh, we see what happens at this point. So she's kind of slipped in in the middle of the night. Something startled the man, right? I mean, can you imagine, guys? You know, you're sleeping, and all of a sudden you kick over, and you, you know, there's a young lady there. Um, that would be startling. Uh, and she, he discovers a woman lying at his feet, and he says, Who are you? And she says, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. And we'll talk about that in a second. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that of which you showed earlier. And he's talking about the way that Ruth had taken care of Naomi, right? This kindness is greater than which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a, a near of kin, there is a kinsman, kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, he, uh, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as sure as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. Very interesting. So he says, look, this is a great story. He's saying, look, I'm in your family. And I am a kinsman redeemer, but there's someone even closer. The law required that uh, if someone was going to lose their property, if a man fell on hard times and was forced to sell his land, the nearest relative, which they called a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer, could buy the land. And stepping into buying the land would keep it from another tribe or another family and so it kept it all within the family. So Boaz says, look, I will take the property of Elimelech, and I will also take responsibility for Ruth. Now, you read that, and you say, oh, isn't that nice? Well, this is no small act of kindness. This is a huge sacrifice, especially because Ruth was a foreigner. No man in that culture would have wanted a woman like Ruth. That's the truth. But Boaz says, look, I will love who no one else loves. I will care for who no one else cares for. I will redeem who no one else will redeem. But as we read there, the plan was for him to redeem, but there was someone closer, a closer relative, had first right of refusal. And it says, he, so he goes to him the next day. He says, hey, here's this land. Here's this uh, woman. She's a foreigner. She's a dead man's widow. And by verse 13, the guy says, look, I don't want anything to do with that. You redeem her. But look at verse 13 of chapter 3 there. It's a beautiful finish to the story. Look what happens. Am I in the right chapter? Chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz, he takes Ruth, and she becomes his wife. It's awesome. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive and gave birth to a son. So Boaz gets this amazing wife, a noble woman. He also gets a baby. Now, this was under no obligation legally. It was pure grace. Pure grace. And Boaz receives a whole lot from it. Now, I want to pause here for a second. I didn't mention Boaz, his history. And maybe some of you know his history, but did you know who Boaz 
who his mother was? Does anybody know? You go back a few, few years, the Israelites were about to take the promised land. Two spies were sent out into Jericho. They were housed and protected by a prostitute, Rahab. You're right, Rahab. And Rahab, the Bible says, had a son. She named him Boaz. I just want you to get this for a second. A prostitute that people would just disregard, take no second look, now has a son, and that son becomes a godly man. You think about it, and you think about this story. And it's like a Christmas present that's open, and on the outside, it looks like an incredible gift. You say, oh, it's just the right size. It's just what I wanted, right? But for Naomi and Ruth in this story, right, on the outside, it actually wasn't what they wanted. On the outside, it looked like loss. But in the end, everything was better than what was expected. See, this Christmas, you may think, oh, you, you may think you know what you're getting. It's just the right size, the right weight. You shake it. You, but when you open the gift, when you get inside the gift, instead of the gift that you were hoping for, instead, you get pain. Or you get infertility. Pete, you want to help me with these? Or you get cancer. Right? In your story, you end up divorced and maybe remarried. You're saying, man, this is not what I wanted. Or maybe you find yourself in debt up to your eyeballs. Or maybe there's abuse that's been going on or that you've found yourself. Or maybe an addiction. Addiction to drugs and alcohol or relational addictions, or different things like that. Or maybe death. Maybe you've experienced the loss of a loved one, and at the holidays, it's just painful. And I know there's some that, that, it, that the holidays remind you of that. Maybe there's that loneliness, and that's a reality in, in a lot of different ways, young people to old people. Or maybe you found yourself in a place where you don't have a job, no employment. Or maybe there was adultery in your family in your marriage, in your situation. And all of a sudden, your life, if you're, you find yourself saying, this is not what I wanted. This is not what I wanted. And you could put another hundred different things up here. And that's where Naomi and Ruth originally found themselves. But before they gave up, the story is beautiful that Ruth has a son Naomi has a grandson, right? Why? Because of the kinsman redeemer who came in, stepped in, and redeemed her. Naomi thought her life was over. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter, right? But now there's hope. Now there's a future. And what's awesome is that this grandson would bring a great blessing to them and ultimately would be the salvation of their family. You say, what? How is that possible? Well, look at it. Look how the story ends. Ruth chapter 4, at the, the last little bit, verse 17, what does it say? 
about this story. Verse 17, uh, well, let's start with 16. It says, Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and, ca- and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. Everyone say Obed, right? He was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. What? The last picture of Naomi's life written in the book of Ruth describes that Naomi's great-great-grandson is King David. Ruth's great-grandson is King David. Now I want you to flip to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to make the tie-in to the Christmas story here. Matthew chapter 1 is the beginning of the Christmas story. It's a genealogy of Jesus. It's the family tree of Jesus. Now track with me, and in verse 5, we see the name Rahab, the prostitute. Are you tracking with me? You see the name Boaz, who, that was his mom. We see the name Obed, whose mother was Ruth, mentioned in the genealogy, who's the father of Jesse, who's the father of King David. The way that plays out is that, uh, that Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, the mother of Boaz, who married the Moabite pagan woman Ruth and redeemed her, had a son, Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who had a son named David. Then years later, in a city in the little town of Bethlehem, why did Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem? Because that's where they were from. That was their line. Naomi and Ruth, they could never have seen this coming, but in the little town of Bethlehem, in a city, Jesus is born. Isn't that incredible? What a picture of redemption, of hope. And I just want to say to those that are here today and those that will listen online, that if you feel like you've been dealt a bad hand and your life is full of disappointment, you're ready to give up, you're all prayed out, and yes, it's hard, and I get that, and I've been in times like that, and I know that you have, and maybe you're in one of those moments this season. I want you to remember that God still has a story, and loss does not have to define your story. There's hope. There's hope. And so when you look at the adultery that's happened in your life, church, there's hope. And the pain that is just overwhelming, there's hope. Pete, why don't you do that for me? When there's infertility, there's hope for you. Years back, we were trying to have uh, a second child, and Jessica and I, we went through this huge process, and uh, we, it was a couple years, and, and uh, it was tough, but God, there was hope there. Pete, you're going too fast. What was that other one? When there's debt, there's hope. When there's cancer, I think, there's hope, right? When there's divorce, and we see it all the time, there's hope. Thank you, Pete. (laughs) When there's abuse or addiction or death or loneliness or unemployment, church, there's hope in all of those circumstances. And God This Christmas, he wants you to know that. There's hope. Jesus brings the hope. Jesus is 
the kinsman redeemer. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, it says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. And I want you to go back to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, where we started. And I want to look at this verse another time. Because there's really two sides to this little verse. There's a side of receiving hope, but then there's also the side of giving hope. Look what it says. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. So there's the receiving as you trust in Him. And why would we receive hope? The only reason that there's hope is so that we can be hope to others so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God's design for you is for you to give hope in your family, in your work, at school, in the club, wherever you go. That is God's design. And sometimes it's hard to realize that. Sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't feel like we want to live that out. But God, He wants us to embrace hope, but then also to give hope. Our district um, treasurer of the Assemblies of God, his name is Jeff Lavin, um, for Christmas he sent out a letter. And in the letter he included a little excerpt from the book by Dutch Sheets, uh, Tell Your Heart to Beat Again. But I want to read this, and it's called Finding Hope in a Bottle. Listen to what it says. It says, in 1965, during a family reunion in Florida, okay, Florida, <laughs> where my parents live, by the way, a grandmother awoke everyone, or woke up everyone at 2 a.m., issuing orders to empty Coke bottles, corks, and paper to get it all together. She says, I've received a message from God. She said, people must hear God's word. She wrote, the verse, wrote verses on paper while the grandchildren bottled them up and put corks in the bottles. Then everyone deposited, this is crazy, over 200 bottles into the surf at Cocoa Beach. I'm sure they love that, <laughs> you know, in 1965. Well, people contacted and thanked her for the scriptures throughout the years. And this grandma, she died in November 1974. The next month, the last letter arrived. It said, Dear Mrs. Gauze, listen to this. I am writing this letter by candlelight. We no longer have electricity on the farm. My husband was killed in the, in the fall when the tractor overturned. He left 11 young children and myself behind. The bank is foreclosing. There's one loaf of bread left. There's snow on the ground, and Christmas is two weeks away. She said, I prayed for forgiveness before I went down to the river to drown myself. The river's been frozen for, over for several weeks, so I didn't think it would take very long. And when I broke the ice, a Coke bottle floated up. 
I opened it, and with tears and trembling hands, I read about hope. Ecclesiastes 9.4, but for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. Hebrews 7.19, Hebrews 6.18, and John 3.3 were all referenced. I came home, read my Bible, and am thanking God. Please pray for us, for we're going to make it now. Now listen, that was an incredible story. And whether it's true or not, the reality is, is that there's two sides in the story. There's the family that was giving, overflowing with hope. But then there was a family, a mother, that received the hope. There's two sides this morning. And I just want to say, first of all, is that God is in control. God is in control of your circumstances. Where you are is not a surprise to him. He knows exactly. He knows the intricate details of your life, of your family, your finances, your health, all those things. But this morning, you may be here and you need to receive hope. And in just a moment, we're going to ask that you would come forward and we want to pray with you. We're going to ask that the Lord would touch you in a powerful way this Christmas. That there would be hope transferred to you. That you would be open saying, God, I need that kind of hope. And that there would be an incredible, uh, uh, supernatural infusion of hope where maybe you were hopeless or maybe you were down or you were thinking, man, can I even get through? But at this moment now, you're going to walk away with your head high. And I believe that for several of you here. But there's a second part of it as well. Is that we are called to be hope. To bring hope. To be Jesus. To share the great story of Christmas. And sometimes we forget about it. Or our head is buried in the sand and we think... All we're thinking about is ourselves, and we miss opportunities. But this morning, I'm going to challenge us to spend a few moments asking the Lord to prepare our hearts that we would overflow with hope to the point where we can bring hope to others. But before we do that, I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. If it's possible this morning that you found yourself here at the Gateway Church and you are away from God. And your life is tracking in a way void of a relationship with Jesus. And we want to give you that opportunity right now, right here, to say yes to Him. To say yes to Jesus at Christmas. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the Christmas story in in more specificity. But this morning, you can know for certain that Jesus came to this earth for you. And all we have to do is receive the gift. And if you're here this morning, you're ready to receive the gift of salvation. If you want to surrender your heart to Jesus, would you just slip up your hand right where you are? I want to pray for you. Who here this morning is ready to receive? Yeah. Who else this morning? See, that's where I am. I feel like if I were to die today, I'm not sure where I'd go. 
There's hope for you. Yeah. A couple young ladies, who else here this morning? Say, yeah, I want to give my heart to the Lord. I want to get my life right. Yeah, thanks. Wow. Wow. Praise the Lord. There's a whole row of young ladies this morning that say, man, my heart is being tugged. Aren't we thankful for that? Hallelujah. Lord, I just thank you that in this moment, Lord, you have captured the hearts of these young ladies. And God, I pray that you would bring hope to their lives. And Lord, the hope of salvation first, God, that you would cleanse their lives, that you would sanctify them, that you would put their feet on a rock, and God, that you would do a miracle in this family. God, I pray, Lord, have your way. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Now, this morning, if you're here today and you need some hope in your circumstance, it could be a variety of things, and there's no shame. But if you're here and you need hope in any way, would you just be bold enough just to raise your hand right where you are? If you're saying, man, that's where I am today. I need some hope in my circumstance. Would you raise your hand? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, who else? Come on. Absolutely. Hands going up all over. Absolutely. You can put your hands down once you raise them. Who else this morning saying, that's where I am today. I need hope today in my, with my kids, with my husband, my wife, with our finances. I need hope. Who this morning would say, yep, that's me. Okay. The other side of the story is, is our call to be hope. And if you're here this morning, you're saying, man, I want to be that for someone else. I want to be the grandma who gets a word from the Lord to stuff Coke bottles with verses to save someone's life 11 years later. I want to be that type of person. And it may not be that supernatural, but uh, the reality is, is that God uses us as his people to bring hope to the world. And if you're saying, that's what I want, would you raise your hand saying, yes, I, that's what I want to be. I want to be that. And if you raise your hand for either one of those, I want you just to stand right where you are. In fact, let's just stand all across this place. And I want us to do something together. I want us to respond. And I, and I want us to spend a moment in the presence of God asking Him that no matter what our circumstances might look like, that we can receive and that we can be, we can overflow with hope in our situations. And so I'm going to ask that you, as we sing through this song, that you would move and that you would come. If you raised your hand for either one of those, I want you to pray, come and spend some time. And our elders are going to come. We're going to pray. We want to link arms with you. We want to pray over you. And I believe that over the next few weeks, the supernatural is going to happen through our lives. And so as we sing, would you move and we're going to pray. We're going to lay our hands on you and we're going to ask God to do his mighty work this morning. Let's do that. Hallelujah, God. Praise your name, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. God, fill this place, God.